0: Hello and welcome to a new episode of Slowdown. Today I am delighted to be joined by Ryan Baldy, author of The Dream Factory, documenting behind the scenes of the English Youth Academy system. Ryan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Ryan, I suppose where to begin, you know, youth development being such a broad area, I imagine there were several iterations before settling on a final topic for this book. However, What encouraged you to write a book on this specific subject?
1: Um, Just a a general, long-standing interest in in youth football, in in, uh, young players coming through. Um, I think there's there's nothing quite like it for for whatever team you support to see a young uh, academy product coming through, um, given that connection, whether that's you know to, to a local. To, uh, to the to the location where, where they're based or whether that's just to, to see the kind of hope and the, the um, exuberance of youth coming through, uh, the fearlessness of a young player kind of coming into the, to the senior game and, and taking on all comers. There's nothing quite like that. So I guess uh, it all stems from a fascination with that and, in, and an interest in finding out uh, how these young players uh, are produced and, um, and what goes into that process. I think we... we most people who keep a sort of cursory eye on on youth football and and uh, the the process uh, of academy football understand that there are negatives and positives and and um I don't think it's necessarily known in, in much depth so so that's what I was trying to do provide the depth provide the insight and especially with so many um because you know it focuses extensively on on english football um so uh, it, it was the premise is basically to look at how this new generation of English players has been produced. So the likes of Foden, uh, Trent Alexander-Arnold, Rashford, who all feature really heavily in the book, uh, how are they produced and at what cost, and what, what are the downsides to the system that that sucks in twelve thousand young people and, and spits most of them back out again.
0: And I suppose you mentioned the word there debt. and if you're to take a broad and prospective look at that huge system, often in football. You know the word football and the other <laughs> uncritical thinking—they don't necessarily go hand in hand. I mean, were you slightly perplexed, if not a little bit surprised, a topic of such magnitude hasn't been covered in detail before? Um, there have been there have been other um, other books in the kind of realm.
1: Uh, Michael Calvin did one called "No Hunger in Paradise" uh, in 2017, which. Um, cover some similar themes to what, what I explored in my book. Um, I, I think mine is a more sort of um, all-encompassing view of uh, of youth football for, as far as I can see it. Uh, Michael did a great job of looking at the the very human element um, and the human cost, which is definitely, which is something I've gone into as well and, and kind of just taken on the mantle from, from him and updated it a little bit from the insight I was able to glean. Um, but... I don't think there's been as much done on the kind of processes and um, the, the day-to-day work on the grass as, as what I was able to do. Um, there was a book again, a guy called Chris Green wrote a book called Every Boy's Dream, um, but that I think was in 2009 or 2010. So a lot has changed in, in the youth football world since then, um, not least the introduction of the Elite Player Performance Plan, which, which is a set of rules and guidelines that govern um uh, you football in England for the for the top four divisions, and that, that was a real sort of seismic change in 2012. So um, things are a lot different to they were back there. So I've kind of combined the two, in, in, in essence, to to take that 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 work of every boy's dream to look at the the processes and the regulations and things, and and how each club operates, mix it with what Michael Calvin did with um, you No know, Hunger in Paradise, and then also kind of did. Go go further to add a lot of case studies and to look specifically at um, people like Trent Alexander-Arnold, like I said, Phil Foden, Marcus Rashford, and speak to the people who uh, were front and centre to their developments. And and to, and I think I've I've get, managed to gain a level of access into the into the youth football world that that is unprecedented. To, to go to all these academies, that I spent the last couple of years visiting uh football academies from the very top end of the game all the way down to to non-league and everything in between so there's a real broad spectrum and a real um kind of a a broad approach to to understanding the different ways that different clubs operate and how things like money affect um how clubs are able to operate the youth systems how different philosophies work in on a kind of day-to-day on on in a real world way um so yeah i think uh i think some things have been done on it um I don't know why uh the the idea that i've i've come up with hasn't been done before my uh initial any hesitancy i had towards it initially was a worry of whether um i would be able to get the access i would need um and i think maybe that's perhaps if anyone's tried it before that's might be where they've fallen down or where people might have just assumed that you would fall down because it's quite a closed off world. Um, I think clubs are often quite secretive of what they do in their academies for fear of any kind of backlash and, and um, to expose, I don't know if they feel like there are any trade secrets, but what I found was that the people actually who have their, you know, whose who's, uh, studs touch the turf, uh, the coaches and and um, the people doing the day-to-day work are, are quite proud of what they do and are really keen to kind of show it off. Um, so and in, in, in meeting those people, I found it, it's actually an incredibly open um, environment. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's, that's where I was really fortunate and that I was able to get the access that I needed. And that's where the insight comes from, from the people who are living in that world on a, on a, on a daily basis.
0: Naturally, the book is a comprehensive study of basically the English Academy system. And I suppose where's best to begin? By dissecting that English academy system and as you related to earlier on the P for people that are unfamiliar, the Elite Player Performance Plan. I mean what are the main differences between category one, two and three academies in the UK?
1: So um, yeah the Elite Player Performance Plan um, like, like I said it's, it's the set of rules that govern English football. Um, every club uh, under its auspices, is audited regularly and given a grading based on their staffing levels, their facilities, the investment they're plowing to their academy. Um, and yeah, there are pros and cons to, to uh, each category level. Um, so category one is the highest. That's I think there are there are more each year because clubs apply. I think um, just this year, at Burnley were one of the new ones. Their academy I visited; they were in the process of of working towards their category one. Um, when I visited them, and I achieved that, Crystal Palace was another one I visited who are now category one. And um, I think Leeds were the other who who got it this year. I think there are three. So the I think, were, it was I think Leeds wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, it was, it was Leeds. Was Leeds yeah. Right, yeah. So I think there are um, tw- around twenty, just over twenty, I think um, category one academies. Um the basic advantages of that are the prestige of it, to, to be to be um, lumped in with the likes of Man City and Man United and, and Chelsea, who are all plowing a lot of money into their academies and to be considered on their level. Um, you also get to bypass the 90-minute catchment rule um, when you're recruiting players age 14 and up. So every other academy, they can't recruit players under the age of 16 uh, from further than a 90-minute radius, a 90-minute drive's radius from their academy. Um, it's the, the idea is to kind of keep it local and to not force um, these young children to have to travel an excessive amount to, to train. Um, but if you're Category 1, I guess the, the, the feeling is that um, we shouldn't be denying um, these young people, the opportunity to, to train at the very best facilities. So they're therefore four from 14 and up. Category one academies can recruit nationally. So that's one of the advantages. Um, and yeah, it, it just means you're you're providing a level of funding which translates to a level of coaching facilities um, that is, is the top of the top. Um, but then we, we see clubs who are moving away from Uh, Are kind of willfully dropping down the categories and reducing their offering or even moving from out from under the auspices of EPPP altogether. Clubs like Brentford who shut down their academy now run a B team model they just felt it wasn't cost effective. They were were a category 2 academy and it was costing them around £2.5 million a year to to run their academy Um, and they became exasperated at losing some of their best players to the, the big name clubs and the final straw uh, that they cite is was the loss of Josh Bowie to Man United and uh, Giancarlo Povda to Man City, uh, and they claim to only received around thirty thousand pounds in compensation for each of these um, you know, top-level young talents that they lost at, at sort of sixteen years old or, or so, and they felt they were they were putting in so much investment and not getting the return because the system they felt was rigged against them, um, so they decided to. Do away with their academy altogether. Um, they received a lot of criticism for that because of, it, it meant heartbreak for the hundred or, or more young people within their academy system. They were told, you know, they've, they've got nowhere to come anymore, and uh, they were being released. Um, but they would contest it in the long run. It's going to lead to to less heartbreak because they're not bringing in um, hundreds of, of young people each year into their academy who you know the vast majority of them are let go at some point now what they do is they have one single b team and they recruit players sort of 16 17 18 years old all of whom they believe have a real chance of making it into their first team um so that's a really interesting thing to look at uh, in regards to the future of the academy system in this country because um some clubs now are following suit uh huddersfield uh, Birmingham City, a reducer offer in Bolton, dropped all the way down from Category 1 to Category 4 um, as kind of cost-cutting <laughs> measures. So it, yeah uh, clubs are starting to feel that it's not worth the the investment um not worth the the time and effort essentially um but others are going the other way like like we said there are there are teams who are still trying to make category one status and believe in the in the value of that so yeah it's interesting it's kind of a, a divide coming there's there's a, a, a good handful of clubs now are stepping away from the system um or, or like we said reducing their offering to to become a lower category intentionally um So, yeah, it it would suggest that there's perhaps a middle ground or or, or that this system that's been in place now since 2012 might be ripe for a bit of an upheaval or an updating. So that's something to watch out for.
0: Skeptics, Ryan, would suggest to the system that just by and large share consequences to numbers if you're a Category 1 or, in fact, 2 Academy. It is nearly Ponzi scheme-like in terms of what you referred to earlier on and Brentford um, getting something like 30,000. Pounds for a player like Ian Paveda who's gone on to shine for Leeds United and is an established Premier League player by this stage. Um, one gripe of mine when it comes to youth development is that very few times do you see clubs tailor an individual um, development programme towards their players. Very few times is it completely organic. It's more at the behest of a game model of somebody else's lived experience. I mean, isn't it quite telling that this perhaps is the exception and quite not often a rule when it comes to individual and player led philosophies
1: yeah i think it's something that a lot of clubs profess to um but i think um how much they really adhere to it when when it comes to it um it is another matter uh it's something i think that is is on the rise i think um it was it was quite a key feature of, of a couple of chapters in my book to look at these clubs who are who are attempting to take a very individual-focused approach to their youth development. Um, Liverpool, are a big one, they've, they've been doing it for a few years. They are very much about uh, tailoring each individual's um, development plan, um, so much so that results are, are de-emphasised. That you know how the team gets on isn't it doesn't take precedence over how each young player is developing within their system. Um, and I used Trent Alexander-Arnold as a case study in, in that respect, looking at um, how he was transformed into a right back, um, and how he was that that was that was his development plan. How it was it was communicated to him, the, the feedback that was um, put in place, the feedback mechanisms, um, and speaking with the coaches, people like uh, Michael Beale, people like um, Neil Critchley, who's Blackpool's manager now, who was who was a big key figure in, in Trent Alexander-Arnold's development looking at the very kind of the, the micro of how they did it. And then the macro of the philosophy of, of how they look to apply that across the board. So Liverpool are one who, who, who profess an individual focus and really kind of live by it. United are another. Um, there's a chapter in the book where, where I kind of juxtaposed Trent Alexander-Arnold's development with uh, Marcus Rashford, who was doing a similar thing, just 20 miles or so Um across the road uh, at Carrington in that he was transforming from a winner to a striker at the age of 16. And they were, they held him back, you know, that they could have pushed him on and played him in their under 23s when he was 16, 17, 18, um, as they do with some of their, their, their bigger prospects and um, Rashford had the talent to do that, but they, they saw a future for him as a striker and wanted to develop his finishing and thought he's going to get more looks at goal by staying with our under 16s and, and playing with players his age he's going to get more opportunities for, for that trial and error process of, of, of figuring out how to finish and how to deal with the pressure of being through on goal and, and carry the burden of scoring the goals for your team. If he was playing up at under 23s, he might be only sniffing at half chances for for most of the games that he plays. So they took a conscious effort to kind of sacrifice the the team ethic and the, and the, the chances of getting a, a talented young boy into one of the bigger teams and boost, boost the results of one of the bigger teams by by keeping him back and working on his finishing and rounding out his skill set. Um so yeah they're another one who who profess an individual approach and deliver on it. Um but from what I heard, you know, a lot of teams say they do it, but but, but don't necessarily follow through, um, and it happens through the leagues. To Colchester, one of the clubs I visited, and they um, are really individual focused. I met with John D'Souza, who was their academy manager at the time. He's since been promoted to director of football or an equivalent role, um, and he was saying that he's always thought he always thought he he had a, an individual approach. Um, dating back to when he, he kind of made his name in youth football with Brentford as, as a young coach there. Um, but then he said, I stopped and thought, and I thought, hang on, I always play 4-3-3. I always play with the ball on the ground. I have a I have a philosophy about how my teams play. How can I be individually focused if I have this rigid kind of belief in how football should be played. What if it's in the best interest of one of my defenders to go along every now and again or, or for a goalkeeper to, to go along if he's going to be playing at a League Two level? Maybe it's better for him as an individual to go along every now and again. So I have to kind of look at myself and and look at that and, and adapt. So um, that's something that he did. He adapted and, and instituted a real a proper individual focus at, at Colchester, which, which bore results for them. They're, they're a club who have a real strong um, connection with their academy, you know, between their first team and their academy, they've targeted um, on how many uh, academy players they get through um, in a very specific way. The chairman wants fifty percent of the players to be academy players, and he wants fifty percent of the minutes to be taken up by academy players. And they were they were very close to achieving both of those targets when I when I met with John. Um, so, yeah, it happens right through the leagues, this individual focus. Um, and I think it is something that's growing. But, like you said, um, with with the sheer numbers, you know, 12,000, just on the boy side, there are around 12,000 boys in, in academies in the top four divisions at any one time. Um, you just think, how, how can you really claim to cater the individual if there are that many individuals? You know, the, the sheer numbers would, would suggest that it's very difficult. Um, so, yeah, that, that's where the, the philosophy um, might differ from the reality in some respects.
0: Well, it's pretty illuminating. Um, just getting back to what you earlier said about um, Liverpool de-emphasising the results. I think it's funny that you mentioned Neil Critchley because I was about to say, having taken over at Blackpool earlier on in the season, I know the end of the season and the highwood promotion to the Championship, he exasperated Blackpool fans, didn't he, at the start? When he said he wasn't looking at the league table for the first 10, 15 games. And it makes me more curious, Ryan, about this concept of having cultural architects within your club, be it the D'Souza, Colchester, you speak about Tony Whelan, Paul McGuinness at Manchester United, Alex Englecourt at Liverpool. How important is it to have these cultural architects at a club where they're, they have this egoless? Leadership from a fair, and it really is a culture of empowering the player. Best case possible, we speak about is Marcus Rashford, and you look at him. What United have created a leader both on and off the pitch. How important is it to have these cultural architects within your environment? I think it's huge within
1: academies. I think it's something that, um, like we said, with, with the whole kind of uh, philosophy of developing the individual, it's something that people use the word culture and throw it around as as a kind of buzzword. Um, and it's easier to kind of just throw out there than it is to actually implement and make make real. Um, and there are different schools of thought as to how real it is within, within a senior environment. But I think it is crucial more so in academies because you're dealing with not just footballers, not, not professional um, sports people. You're, de- you're dealing with children um, and you have a responsibility to them as young people first and foremost before you have a responsibility to them as footballers or potential potential future employees for for your company for example so you have to have that kind of holistic approach to developing young people and not sacrificing their their well-being their futures for the sake of one or two talented young players who might make it in the end so that is something you, you mentioned guys like um uh, Tony Whelan and, and, and Paul McGuinness both people I spoke to for the book there's, there's a whole chapter in the book called Raising a Rashford which is which looks at this kind of uh, this philosophy of developing young people before developing young footballers which was really key at United and at other clubs um, Paul McGuinness used the term Guardians of the United Spirit that's what he refers to people like Tony Whelan as people who put the interest of, of these young people first and foremost and really appreciate the responsibility they, they have that they hold in their position um as as guardians of these young people. You know, they are dealing with the formative years of impressionable young young people. And that shouldn't be lost for the for the sake of uh, of football development. And, and luckily with with United and with other clubs it isn't. Um I wouldn't I wouldn't for a second claim that that's the case across the board, but um Tony Whelan, as you mentioned, in particular, is a very impressive individual. He's someone who's kind of one of the one of the uh the key figures throughout my book. Um he's a guy who's vastly experienced. He he was a young player at United himself in the 60s. He became only the second black player ever to, to play for United and uh, when he when he played in albeit in a friendly, but um uh yeah. So he he's he's dealt with a lot coming through as 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 a as a young player now. He's he's in his late 60s himself. He's he's been in the United's youth setup since the early nineties, um, so he's just he's kind of an oracle of of English youth football, and and it's really heartening to see a guy with all his experience who isn't jaded uh, towards the role and, and is still deeply reverent of his of his position. Um, and yeah, the, the culture they try to implement of of making sure these the people they're dealing with the, the young people they're entrusted to or interested to them rather um, are well-rounded uh, and are given the opportunity to, to learn about other cultures when they go on trips abroad to, uh, for, for example, um, I, I cited the examples in the book of how United would um, encourage their young players to kind of make a presentation to, to their, their hosts when they go and stay, stay um, abroad for a tournament, they'll make, they'll present pennants and sign shirts to hotel staff. They'll make sure their rooms are tidied. Um, they'll, they'll, uh, the club will put together little pamphlets to inform the children about about the place they're visiting with with short phrases and things like that. They'll go, they'll go and visit a city centre. It won't just be, you know, they won't just be travelling from one AstroTurf pitch to another. Um, you know, they'll have the, the football blinkers off and be able to see the world because these these young people are travelling the world um, from the ages of 9, 10, 11. Um, so it's important that they're not doing so just just to kick a ball around. That These experiences are enriching because the people who are... Who are looking after them are acutely aware that only a small fraction are going to make a living from this game, so they don't want the, these years to be wasted years. They want want them to be enriched by them, um, and that is something that you would hope is the case throughout football. Um, it's probably not, uh, but but it certainly should be, and you would hope that it, it is increasingly So, um, but yeah, I, I did. I, I met and interviewed a lot of good people who who are consciously aware of things like that uh, and and their responsibility. Um, um, yeah, like like I say, my hope is that that, that attitude will will um, pervade over over the coming years as we become more aware of of well being and mental health, and and I think we we really need to start to recognise that if if they're gonna be bringing these these young people into football in such vast numbers, which um, on a on a personal I don't think is necessary. And interestingly, a lot of the coaches I spoke to and a lot of the academy managers I spoke to don't think it's necessary to have such numbers. Um, but the kind of the decision is is not theirs. Um, it, it's um, it's the machine that is that needs to be fed, and the clubs are feeding it. And as long as they're feeding it, then um, the people who are who are dealing with these these young people, these young children, um, need to be aware of their responsibility to them.
0: Yeah, unfortunately, when you say the word machine, it doesn't. It, it does bring negative connotations, doesn't it? I mean. Personally, working in an academy environment myself, I find the biggest grey area is the gap between reality and parents' expectations. I don't think necessarily that parents totally understand what moulds these human beings such as a Marcus Rashford or a Trent Alexander-Arnold. They just see the finished product, the footballer at the end of the day. With that being said, do you believe the parents, are they educated enough?
1: I think they're easily exploited too often. Um, I think it's it's a sad fact that, that too many get get swept up by seeing their kid with the say for example the Chelsea crest on their tracksuit or whatever club you care to name. Um, you uh, are the too easily kind of believing of 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 the dream that that their their, their boy or girl is going to go on to be a superstar. Um, maybe they're not as aware of, of the numbers and the, and the, and the probabilities as, as they should be. And I think that responsibility rests with the clubs to make them aware of that. Um, you'd hope that, that most do, but I know for sure from, from people I've spoke to and, and stories I relay in the book that that isn't the case. There are there um, a couple of chapters that, in the book that focus on um, the process of release um, and the aftercare that the game offers to, to the, the children released from academies. One focuses on like slightly younger ages, uh, and one focuses on the players who get a little bit closer to, to the dream and before it's kind of stripped away from them. And in one, um, I was able to reproduce uh, word for word an email that a, a Category 1 Premier League team sent to the parents of a seven-year-old boy who'd been with them um, since the pre-academy level at the age of four. Um, they released him or, or kind of Disinvited him to, to continue training with them after he'd recovered from breaking a leg uh, while playing football um, without any, any previous uh, indication that he wasn't up to snuff, that he wasn't performing, um, and it was quite—it was just very impersonal. It was one of these emails whereby you're supposed to kind of fill in the, the name of the recipient, and they just hadn't bothered to do that. So it was literally, um, "Dear Parent Guardian, yeah, your, your boy isn't invited anymore." there's no, we don't, at this age, we don't give specific feedback, but here are a handful of things that most, most kids could do with improving on. Um, and the parents of that same boy, they asked me not to, not to name the club. Um, he was actually training with four family clubs at the time. Um, he's still, he's still, he's still hopeful of kind of continuing with a couple of them. He didn't want, he didn't want to burn any bridges. So he didn't want to, to name the clubs, but the same club who released him after being with them for pretty much half his, half his little life, um, had at one point, um, one of the scouts had had gathered the, the parents together uh, and said that fifty um, percent of the boys in our academy uh, will go on to have careers in the game or something like that. They, they, they were. It was basically a way of boasting about the their credentials as, as one of the best academies around and and how they they pretty much guarantee a career even for these seven year olds that fifty percent of them will go on to achieve whatever whatever in the game and yeah it was a way of kind of bigging themselves up and it was completely disingenuous and was, of course it's completely false um so yeah it was just really taking these impressionable parents and and selling them a lie selling them a dream and, and a lie and, and they get targeted as well by agents i, I spoke to mason's man, mason mount's dad for the book um i wanted to get the perspective of the parent of a, of a really gifted individual who was targeted by a lot of clubs and. Um, he told me the story about how he was um, on, a, on an international trip with Mason. He'd been playing for one of the England youth teams in France and and Tony and his, and his wife were at a bar after the game and an agent approached him and offered him £200,000 if he could get Mason to sign with him. He, he just battered him away said, no, no there's going to be a quid pro quo that that money's that money will be my son's money that you're paying me with uh, down, somewhere down the line there's going to be a quid pro quo for that so I'm, I'm not interested i'm not i'm not here to sell my son basically but you hear horror stories about mortgages being paid off or cars being bought or jobs being given to parents as, as sweetness from, from agents or, or or clubs who um try and sell a lifestyle i, I spoke as well to Rian Brewster's dad um for the book um who of course now is at sheffield united but has uh, previously been at Chelsea and Liverpool's academy at the point at which Rian was looking to leave Chelsea or at least was exploring his options at 14. Uh, there was a lot of interest in him from other Premier League clubs. And again, um, his dad, Ian, didn't want to disclose who it was. Uh, he didn't want to throw anyone under the bus, but he said there was there was one club who kind of, um, one of the coaches put his arm around him, showed him around um, around the players' lounge and, and showed him the lifestyle. And I said, you know, if, if your boy comes with us, this, this is your life. This is how things are going to be for you. You're going to be at the stadium on match stage. You're going to be rubbing shoulders with all these all these players and things like that. And, and again, a more impressionable parent would, would fall for a hook, line and sinker, you fear. And um, yeah, that that's kind of the unscrupulous side of the game where there's this this arms race for talent um the clubs are also desperate and, and the people around the game the agents and the managers are so desperate to get these players on side and um, for, for for you know just out of the, the faint notion that one of them will be a hit um and there are there are, there are methods and in inducements used that are you know aren't aren't within the rules and uh and much bes- much beside the the rules of the game they're, they're completely unethical
0: yeah, I mean, one parent who certainly does his due diligence, as you spoke about Tony Mount, the guy who doesn't suffer fools gladly. Mm. I mean, you recalled in the book, or you spoke in the book about how Tony recalled the advice he gave to young Mason at a kitchen table where he's very pragmatic over his chances mm. of depression. Chelsea obviously did good to develop the player. Yeah, How crucial is it to get that support network right around the young player at that time?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's really big because these are formative years for for the young person in their life. And it's strange, isn't it, because they're kind of on a career path from from as early, you know, Mason was at Chelsea from six. Um, You don't really get that in other other industries uh, where you're on this kind of predestined path, or at least you hope you are from from such an early age. um, Faint dreams of wanting to be a fireman or an astronaut don't really have the same kind of, kind of uh, they're not as tangible at that age as they are when you're you know you're going into Cobham every week to, to train you're wearing the club's crest on your tracksuit like we talked about so it is important to have have the support of people around you be like your family your friends or people in the, at the club people advising you because you need to keep your feet on the ground be realistic and that was something that like you said that moment in the book where there was there was a family meeting among the Mount family uh, when Mason was 14 and. Um, because that's the point at which you know a two-year contract with the club ends and you have the chance to explore other options. And there was interest. Um, Tony Mount met with other clubs. That, uh, I don't know if Mason was with him, but they they, they did field interest from two other clubs. He, he didn't want to name that, name them again um, because they're um, rivals of Chelsea's, essentially. They, they went and they, they met and they were presented and the, the, the other clubs knew everything about Mason had a path laid out for him and he thought at the time players weren't get, getting through from Chelsea's academy Chelsea had one of the best academies in the, in the world for producing players and bringing talent through but they just weren't getting through at Chelsea they were getting careers elsewhere essentially at this point um, because you know Mason was was one of the first to really break it on a sustained level uh, and and Tony presented it to, to Mason at a kitchen table in his family meeting in a very frank manner said you know we love Chelsea. They've been great to us. But looking ahead of you, looking at the boys older than you, that we know how good they are. We know what they can do, but they're just not getting through. Is it time for us to look elsewhere? Um, on this occasion, Mason, Mason was adamant. He's like, no, I'm going to be the one. I'm going to get through. And um, they stood by him. They stood by that decision. They weren't going to... What what they did is present the facts to him, present viable alternatives, um, present other pathways and say, you know, it's your choice. This is a this is reality we support you in what you want to do. And and Mason decided to stick with where he was and he was sure he was going to get through at Chelsea. And, and, you know, he, his, his faith in himself has been rewarded. Um, But I think that's kind of what, what you, that's kind of an ideal scenario for a young player, I guess is someone who's always looking out for their best interests um, and being frank with them, but ultimately not making any decisions for them. Um, So yeah. And like you said, Tony has been around the game a long time. He's, he's, He's uh, been a manager at non-league level um he knows the game uh and he doesn't suffer fools like you say um, so yeah somebody like that i think is, is probably important whoever that might be in your life whether that's like i said a coach or a parent or a friend i think um it's important for these impressionable young individuals to have such sort of support and, and common sense presented to them um and you'd hope it, it would be something that is, is there for all these children. But again, the numbers were suggesting you know, it's probably not there are going to be some who are going to be easily led astray, um, which is a shame.
0: Yeah, and then I suppose zooming back out on the bigger picture, looking at clubs again, Ryan, you see there is more of a concerted focus on some of the bigger clubs perhaps to kind of break away from this traditional model of, oh, we've always done it this way and it's always worked. Case in point being Arsenal, um, you spoke in her book about their pioneering approach to mixed mixed sex training. I mean, are there any other Category 1 academies challenging the status quo as much? Um,
1: perhaps not in such an effort way. I think others have followed suit is, is what has happened when, when you re, were specifically relating to the mixed sex training. That's something that's very common now. Arsenal were just an early adopter of it. Um, I spoke to James Honeyman, the, the girls' academy manager there. And he he was quick to praise the work of people like Tessa Sanderson who came before him in the role, um, who uh, again were very sort of cognizant of of Arsenal's standing within women's football and and their position as as one of the bastions of women's football. And they were, you know, they wanted to stay ahead of the game and stay and be uh, a leader, and that's what they, what they did. What they did with their mixed sex training um, and exposing their best young girls to, to training with the boys, not just as a as a way of developing skill, but as a way of developing acceptance, um, which I think is also really key, um, because there's, there's no reason why why it shouldn't happen. And it's something you know, I I went to Liverpool's academy and I spent the evening with Julie Grundy there, the uh, women's academy manager, and she. She was saying, you know, she were doing the same thing that the young girls play in mixed leagues up into a certain age. I think they're allowed to play mixed football until they're 18 or, or maybe at 16. I, I might not be getting that quite right, but um, so the opportunity is there for anyone to do that. And I think a lot of clubs are adopting that approach now. Um, and yeah, in terms of other kind of thinking outside the box pioneering approaches, I think we're seeing a lot of clubs now um, look look to other sports. Um we've seen multi-sports programs being introduced again as much as a kind of social element to, to, because these, these kids are giving up so much of their free time and um, that there's a, there's a desire among some clubs to not see them give up their childhood. Um, so I met with John Pepper, who was, who was until just, I think, last week, Burnley's Academy managers recently just announced he's going to be stepping down. Um, he was talking about their multi-sports program. They, they do things like that have judo classes for one term or they do go um, I don't know what it might be, a laser tag or something with each other, just encouraging a social element because they do give up so much of their time. Um, and we're seeing that more and more, I think. Uh, Fulham, uh, I think, do something similar. I met with Hugh Jennings, their academy manager. Uh, just to, I think the innovations now are around uh, protection of, of the, the youth uh, and the childhood of these, these young people. Um, and it seems as well that the kind of drive towards the individual development model is something that a lot of teams are, are trying to push and do in their own way. Um, so that those, those are the main areas in which I think I saw kind of clubs trying to break from the norm.
0: It's intriguing you speak about that multi-sports model, Ryan, because um, having researched Icelandic youth development through my research thesis, I believe two years ago now, having visited the country and spoke to all these academy managers, they believe concretely that their multi-sports approach for the likes of Alfred Finnbogs and Guilfi and that golden generation that came through and appeared at the 2016 Euros 2018 World Cup was a huge factor behind their um, appearances there. But then, I mean, we've spoken about all the big academies, which is fair enough. But what are the smaller academies doing to bridge the gap? Arguably, are there perhaps times where having limited resources, in fact, counterintuitively helps the, prog- the process? You speak about ample case studies in your book from Colchester United with the Sioux Kidderminster Town, what they're trying to get there. Mm. And then bringing La Masia to Shrewsbury, which I'm <laughs> intrigued with.
1: Yeah. So yeah, no, there are there are things being done down the leagues. Um yeah, there's there's a chapter La of the Lower Leagues. Uh, it, it was named that because um, I met with David Longwell, who is Shrewsbury's Academy Manager and he, he, he kind of cut his teeth at Hibbs where he, he made Hibbs the... Uh, sorry, St Mirren. He made St Mirren the, the third most successful uh, youth academy in Scotland while he was there behind, of course, the old firm Big Two and he made them competitive with Rangers and Celtic despite... It's such a you know financial disparity between the clubs, and he he has always been a, a big admirer of Barcelona and the way not just the way they play, but the way they develop their young players. He used to hand out, uh, photocopied pages of Johan Cruyff's autobiography to his staff and things like that. He, he would be looking at people like Iniesta and Xavi and, and how they were developed and and using the same processes with, with people like John McGinn, who was who was one of his big success stories up at Saint Mirren. Um, yeah, and he's bringing those philosophies now to Shrewsbury. That are kind of a very Barcelona-esque uh, model of play, um, but also with a with a splash of the the Red Bull philosophy. That because he was um, academy manager at Red Bull um, New York Red Bulls for, for for a while as well. He worked with Jesse Marsh there, and they have quite a different approach. It's almost anathema in some ways, and that you know it's a lot of without the ball play, a lot of pressing. Um, so he's, he's he's taking bits of both and, and trying to implement that down the leagues that Shrewsbury and seeing how that can help them develop players. But yeah, uh, when you go down the leagues, you should also become very aware of the food chain. Um, so, for example, one of the clubs I visited early on was Barry, who uh, of course sadly are no longer in existence anymore. Um, I, I, I visited them in, the, in their final months before they went on to and met with their academy manager, Mark Liddelland. And he explained to me how, uh, you know, they had a really good record of developing players and they had a good good youth team. They were a category three academy at the time. Um, and it was really interesting. I used a, I used the juxtaposition in my book for the very opening chapter. I thought it was a good kind of table setter to, to explain how uh, finances affect things in, in youth football. They, they, until they went under, were training at Man City's old training ground in Carrington. Um, and the first thing I noticed when I pulled up onto the car park was that on the... Facade at the front of the building, you can see the outline of where Man City's old club crest was, and, uh, and and a faded club crest, and you can see the words Abu Dhabi, where the signage had been removed, but um, uh, the, the paint hadn't been it hadn't been painted over, and it just had the words Burnley Football Lou because the C and the B of club had fallen off and never been replaced. and you know, it, it didn't have. A pot to pee in essentially he had a, he had a yearly recruitment budget of £5,000 uh, to run a category three academy and he told me about how the grant that they would receive from the EFL they never saw any of it because the, the owners were furrowing it away from themselves essentially and people weren't getting paid as it on time and things like that so he one of the really fascinating things that he laid out for me was that they, they kind of at the age of sort of 11 or 12 they start to look at who are their best prospects and whereas most academies would earmark their best prospects for a for future sort of professional development plan down the line and looking at how, how they can develop them to be ready for the first team. At Berry, it was how can we make them ready for sale? Um, that was a sad reality of their existence. The academy was there to prop up the club. Um, they made two and a half million pounds over the last five years there through player sales. They kind of made a specialty of developing ball-playing centre-half that became what they were known for. And he, he openly referred to um the clubs above them championship and premiership clubs as the premier league clubs as their customers he called them we know we call them our customers we so we develop our kind of a-list prospects with sale in mind um so they're fully aware that before the age of 16 these players are going to be be off somewhere else um and then you know the, the the next level the next tier down the ones who are probably going to have a chance of making their first team down the line so yeah, it's really interesting to, to note that the the food chain within the academy football is just as real as it is at the senior level. Um, so while there are those who are trying to punch above their weight, up teams like Shrewsbury, you mentioned Kidderminster, who had a really interesting idea of of integrating a university program with alongside their academy and and making the football club the kind of heart of the town and replacing the the, the dying carpet industry that it used to be known for. There used to be fifteen thousand people employed in the carpet industry in Kidderminster, and now about five hundred. And the, and the football club are looking to fill that gap by bringing a university on site and bring with that the custom that it brings to the town but also providing opportunities to the young people of the town so they would um if you know even if it's not playing football if somebody wants to be an analyst they can go and study to be an analyst and work alongside you know present present video packages to the academy and things like that give, to give real tangible experience and provide opportunities that way so that's how they were innovating um and, yeah, and we touched on Colchester as well and the things they were doing so there. So, yeah, there are those who are still trying to punch above their weight and, and think outside the box, but there are also those who are either shutting down their offering, like, like I mentioned, uh, Bolton was one who'd gone from category one to category four in, I think, a space. I think it was less than two years they did that. And interestingly, Mark Lidland, who was Barry's academy manager, uh, who's, who's now Bolton's academy manager. Um, and, and clubs like um, Huddersfield, who are adopting a BT model like Brentford, I think even Birmingham are doing something similar now. It's fairly recently, um, fairly recently announced. Even though, just what, just over a year ago, they sold their greatest ever academy prospect for 25 million pound. Um, but they, they they don't deem it a viable operation by all accounts. Judging, you know, that was that was the news I read a while ago. Anyway, I don't know whether they pushed through with those plans. So yeah, it's interesting. Some are innovating, some are. Deeming it not worthwhile, or some are just using it to survive as a, as another revenue stream.
0: It's an interesting thought, though, isn't it? In terms of you were a young player, starting from the beginning, you used the example Phil Foden at Man City, Alley at MK Dons, two players mm. that have gone on to enjoy um, success of similar magnitudes. Let's say in their young careers today, Alley began at MK Dons not a Category 1 academy, but not the worst by all means, but lower down the pecking order, to a Phil Foden who began at a Category 1 Man City in the heart of Manchester. I mean, what's to say one approach is better than the other? Yeah, it's not.
1: Uh, I was asked this question the other day as well. And I think it it, it, it it sounds like a cop-out answer, but it's on a case-by-case basis, and it depends on the individual. Um, I think if you're this kind of destined superstar like Foden always seemed to be uh, I think he was always you know, and Sancho would have been probably there with him as well if he hadn't decided to leave but he was the one they've always felt was going to be the one who to break through because they needed that as well it's all well and good having this academy um, that you pump all the money into and, and it produces great levels of talent but um, it's only going to be sustainable you're only going to keep attracting players if if there's, that pathway starts to open up a little bit and I think uh, Foden has been the canary down the coal mine for a lot of a lot of people at Man City, um, so his success there is going to is going to be a really big uh, a big win for them on that side of things. Um, but yeah, you mentioned the example of Deli Ali uh, going, you know, starting lower down the divisions and having a, a really wide open pathway. So he didn't have the the exposure to the facilities and perhaps um, the the elite of the elite level of coaching and and the and the world and the, you know, the top level talent around him to to sharpen his tools. But what he did have was was a, a, a really wide-open pathway. He was playing first-team men's football in the, in the second and third tiers at, at, um, at 16 years of age. And, and I think that really showed in his game. By the time he got to Tottenham, he was ready for the rigours of, of men's football at the Premier League, and he had that confidence that, that he could cope. Um, and that's something, again, that, that I spoke to John de Souza at Colchester about. He was saying that, uh, that what they, that they can't offer they the reason I went to Colchester they were at, at the time I think it is still the case they were the lowest ranked category two team in in the league so they were the lowest in, in terms of lowest down the divisions to, to have a category 2 Academy or higher um, so what they could offer was that they, they didn't have the facilities of, of the, the top London clubs um, the, the top that the people they're might want to go to but they have a much more open pathway and while they um, they're kind of local rivals. People like Southend or or Cambridge or, or teams like that can offer a comparable pathway. They can't offer the same sort of facilities and level of level of coaching. So they're they're trying to find their, their niche there. They even opened a development centre equidistant between Colchester and London, so they can they can extend their catchment area that bit further and and try to sweep up some of the, the London talent. And they they run a min, minibus daily. For the, for the players based in London who train with them. Um, yeah, because they're selling, on, selling them on the ideal of having a pathway there that some of the London clubs that would have been competing with the same players can't quite offer.
0: I think, you know, quite often on this podcast, I like to celebrate youth development. But having what we spoke about off camera before coming on here, Ryan, you know, it's, you have to give that kind of nuanced and that balanced argument you know, you can't always be altruistic. And you've mentioned words earlier on, such as customers and machine at the lower level, which kind of brings out those negative connotations. But I'll take you back to a quote from the current England manager, Garrett's Southgate, back in his playing days. I love the game, but hate the industry. And I think that's fairly applicable to what's gone on in youth development, albeit at the lower levels. And I think a large part of that stems from fear. I mean, when you look at, Short-term pressures, everything validated in the senior game by five o'clock on a Saturday. That's distilled now right down to the younger ages, where you not only have players, but coaches and staff playing for their futures.
1: Mm. Yeah, um, it is. It's that kind of fear of missing out as well, which drives, which is driving the recruitment. Um this kind of mass levels um, like I said earlier there are around 12,000 boys in, in academy football in the top four divisions at any one time um, almost to, to, to a man to a person rather uh, there, were, there were female coaches too I spoke to almost all of them would agree that that's too many that they don't need to be taking players on from the under nine level um, they'd be much happy to see their clubs adopt an approach like Bayern Munich have done recently um, where they've I think think it's up to 12 isn't it, I think they've stopped taking players but at the same time the reason that's unlikely over over in England is because clubs don't enjoy the kind of monopoly that Bayern do in, in Germany whereby they can quite happily say okay we're going to take this ethical moral approach of not recruiting before the age of 12, we're going to let the kids be kids knowing full well that if the, the, these top young talents, they might miss out on, go to uh, a Leverkusen or a, a, an Eintracht Frankfurt, whoever it might be, that down the line, they can hoover them up at will anyway. They're going to get the best players down the line. It's not really going to affect that. That's, that's their business model and it's very successful for them. In England, the competition is much, much stiffer um, among the top clubs when it comes to recruiting the best talent. That's why they stockpile so young. Um and in the book, I talk about the um, the prisoner's dilemma string of chaos to, uh, of um, game theory, whereby it might be in the best interest of all these clubs to enter into an agreement where they say, "Okay, we're not going to recruit from twelve or under anymore," but it just takes one of them to renege and sweep up all the benefits we've been able to stockpile the best under twelve talent and have them have them in house before all the other clubs, so so nobody does it, so they all they all just keep going with what they're doing as it is, and until until a proper regulation is brought in, then um, then it's not going to change. Uh, you know, it used to be the case that you couldn't formally sign players before the age of 14 to schoolboy forms. That changed in the late 90s with the Charter of Equality, which is something... Uh, there's, a, there's a big historical element to one of the chapters where I look back at the, the Lillershall School of Excellence program, on the National School. And I interviewed Jamie Carrigan and a few other people who were there, looked at how that kind of set the basis for the, the modern academy system, and how in the late 90s, Howard Wilkinson, when he was technical director of the FA, drew up, uh, he was tasked with revamping the youth system in England because for so long, um, Schools football was was the dominant force, and the English Schools FA was the, the the main power in in youth football in England for for most of it the first century of its existence. It was only in the late nineties, when the F, uh, with the Charter of Equality, Howard Wilkerson handed power back to the clubs uh, and in, initiated the the academy system as we know it today. Um, that things changed and instead of being allowed to only sign players to, to schoolboy forms from 14 years of age, that it was stipulated that if you want to have an academy rather than a, a centre of excellence, you need to be running teams from under nines up and having these players sign onto your books because he'd gone and looked at teams abroad, at nations abroad, looked at the likes of Barcelona and Ajax, at Sao Paulo or another club that he looked at, looked all over the world at what other countries were doing who were, at the time, supposedly developing players at a better rate than England. And they were all taking them on younger. Um, There's a whole theory about the golden ages of learning between, I think it's sort of five and six years of age where uh, children are uh, believed to be sort of disposed best to to picking up motor skills and and learning techniques and things like that. So learning football technique, they want them exposed to, to the best possible coaching at the earliest possible age. Um, for fear that if if you, if you let if you let them just play street football, then by the time they they, they enter a professional uh, professionalized environment at fourteen or whatever, they'll be they'll be lacking in some basic skills. So that's why the age was reduced. And but what that led to was a knock on effect of of well, I think I think it's in the high eighties now the amount of teams that have academies. But you know, if you say the ninety two clubs each running an age group from under nines upwards, that's how you end up with more than ten thousand children in the system whereby at the very top level uh, opportunities is only reduced since that time since the late 90s with the the influx of, of money into the Premier League and 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 the desire and the need to buy by ready-made um, players for first team that you know the increasing uh, decreasing patience with with managers um, and, and the unwillingness to take risks and to and to To have patience with the trial and error process that young players need, so there are fewer opportunities to get through, but there are more and more and more children in the system. So you're feeding them, you're feeding a a really kind of thin, uh, a thin disappearing dream to an an increasing number of young people. So that's kind of how we've got to where we are, and how we reverse that, I don't really know, uh, because because like I said, at the moment there's the arms race for talent, unless. All, all those who are, who are driving that agree to, to take, a, take their foot off the pedal. It's not going to change. They're only going to keep going the other way, you know. Although you can't sign a player before they reach the under-90s level, they're still, there are still pre-academies about where, where players are training with clubs from five and six years old and, and getting used to being in that professionalised environment, which probably isn't, isn't too healthy.
0: It's very fascinating what you spoke about and trying to comprehend everything. But um, I suppose... When you say how do we solve it, if you picture a bell curve, for me, if you were to invert that bell curve, you have the top percentile your Manchester United's. And let's say we have the lower categories, such as your Colchester's and Kidminsters. What about that big gap in the middle? I mean, you've discussed at length about what the likes of Brentford and Huddersfield Town have done, for example, Bolton, scaling down their academies. Are we at a danger of this happening more and more and losing the true essence of what an academy model is in the UK? Well,
1: this is something I was thinking about just the other day um, when a similar question was put to me. Um, It's funny because the teams who've now adopted this BT model are reliant on at least a kind of critical mass of other teams not following suit because... um, if they're only signing players at 16, 17 years of age, the players they're signing aren't players who've never had formal professional training before. They're players who have either dropped out of other academies or they've signed from other teams. Um, So if everybody says, okay, well, we're not going to take players until they're 16 anymore. We just want a B team full of 12 to 15 players who we think have a real chance to make it in our first team. Where do those players come from if everybody's doing that? Um, Do you re-empower schools football? Do you... um, yeah, I mean, what, what is the solution to that? I, I don't know. So it's funny there has to be some kind of middle ground at some point because if you go too far the other way, then you, you, you end up producing no players. So um, I, while, while I certainly would agree that at the moment we're having far too many players at too young an age coming into, into the system, and like I said, almost everyone I spoke to would agree with that, um, the models that, that are being proposed and being adopted by the few who are breaking away um I think if he, you know just as a thought exercise would be unsustainable were they to be adopted wholesale across across the whole country um so that that, that can't be can't be a solution for everybody. so there's got to be some core, some sort of middle ground if we are if we are going to say that the system needs to be to be looked at and to be um, to be changed then um, it has to be something else something yes yeah, some, some kind of some way of meeting in the middle I think.
0: You, speak, you spoke earlier on about the prisoner's dilemma. You know, it's brought back thoughts of the European Super League. And um, I mean, in Germany, we've seen one of the market leaders in Bayern Munich. You know, their academy system has changed now to where they house only over 12-year-olds. And indeed, other German clubs have followed. So the danger being in the UK, if one of the big Category 1 academies follow suit, do the others join them? It's very interesting. And I suppose just a few more questions to conclude, Ryan. Did you have any biases challenged by undertaking this research between what you thought you believed at the start to what you now believe publicate, publishing this book?
1: Um, I don't think so. Um, I guess what I was encouraged to learn was that just the sheer number of good people working within, within the system, within youth football, um, in these clubs was probably something that surprised me, um, because like, like we said, I think we discussed before we came on, um, there the kind of seems to be the, the coverage of youth football is quite scant, and what what there is of it is, is bipolar. It's either spin to 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 look at how great these young players are being produced by the clubs, uh, the kind of the kind of um, success stories that we see that clubs are very happy to be out there, or it's a very kind of negative. Um, side of things where you're looking at the attrition rates and uh, the human cost which is all absolutely true and is awesome and I've covered it in great depth and it was saddened to learn of so many personal stories of parents and and players that I spoke to about the heartache they suffered Um, but there's rarely kind of 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 a melding of the two together and seeing how they all fit into the same know, to use the word machine again, they're all part of the same ecosystem. Um, So that was essentially what I've tried to do. And that was to to learn of of, of the good work being done, uh, not just in developing footballers, but in in working with people. I found really encouraging that probably did sort of test uh, some biases of mine, I guess, going into it. But at the same time, I I don't come away thinking that everything's rosy. I, I know it's just, you know, a few good people doing really good work, um, who are also kind of shackled by the system themselves uh, and sort of powerless to make any real, real change. And they're just kind of doing what they can and doing the right, what they believe is right. Um, They're still kind of fighting against the tide. So yeah, they're they're encouraging signs, but, but, but overall, I think um, I just come away knowing more than I did going into it because like, like I've said, it's kind of a closed off world. It's, it's not, um, it's not, Uh, a world in which clubs are are too willing to sort of throw open their doors and show what they're doing because I think maybe they're worried that what they're doing isn't um, always going to be to the taste of of the general public.
0: Ultimately, at the end of the day, Ryan, this book is a forensic explanation of how England's current crap were produced. Would a European Championship or World Cup triumph make it all worthwhile? (laughs) Or is it more of a fleeting experience than we care to admit for these groups?
1: I think what it would do, it would would, um, vindicate some of the methodology in terms of the coaching practices. Um, If you look at at, at what Germany did at the turn of the millennium um, to then create that generation of players who went on to win the World Cup, it was was documented so brilliantly in in Raphael Honigstein's book, Das Reboot. there are parallels uh, between that that book and my own in terms of looking at the changes that have been made over the years and how um, the English system has tried to learn from, from elsewhere and how it's evolved and how best practices have been updated and adopted um, to the point now where we are producing talent on a level comparable with, with any nation in the world at the moment. You know, you look at the players coming through, it, it's incredible. Um, but uh, I don't think it should be seen as if... Uh, a world cup or a European championship is one that all is well. And, and that, that alone would justify um, the sheer amount of heartbreak. I, I spoke to, to David Kahn for the book, the Guardian journalist who's done a lot of work on, um, on the ills of youth football and, and the system. Um, and he, he said something that I found uh, really ran true in that if we're going to say that this system is one that takes in 12,000 young people, and spits out quite unceremoniously it's 90 plus percent of them then it's not a dream factory it's a crushing of dreams factory that's what you're dealing you do you're dealing heartache the few make it through it are incidental what you do is is take people in and then they don't get to where they think they're going to get to so it's got more has got to be done yeah. um to either slow the the attrition rate and and to reduce the numbers of people being cast away, or if not, or in conjunction with that, do more to support them um, through that process, both in terms of making them aware of the likelihood of that. And then when it does arrive, make sure it's not too much of a shock to a system, and make sure that everything that they could possibly need to get them, you know, so that it doesn't break them essentially um is put in place. And that's something that for, from my studies and from the people I spoke to, I think the game itself, the decision makers, the policy shapers, um, they think they're a, lo- a lot closer to cracking that than they really are, based on what I've learned. Um, I spoke to a few people who who have, have kind of got some of the answers, who have who've off their own back been been helping young footballers. Guy there's a guy called Paul Mitton, who was a young player at United in the 90s, um he uh, has a program now called Revive he's a personal trainer now so he works with uh, young players from sort of 18 and up released from clubs in the northwest, um, so from United and City and Liverpool and he gets them back on their feet because he's aware because he went through it himself of just how crushing the, the trial process can be once you release so you get told you're not good enough by the club you've been playing for for however long then, if you want to stay in the game, it's trial after trial after trial. So one club's telling you you're not good enough. Now another club slightly below that is telling you you're not good enough. And before you know it, you're falling all the way out, and your confidence is crushed, and your fitness isn't there because you weren't playing enough games in the first place because that because you were you know on the outskirts of the team, on the fringes of the team. So he's put together a program. Um, uh, of personal training, of of counselling and of football training that, that he feels really kind of helps equip players to, to bounce back if they want to or to kind of help them transition away from the game. And he's approached um, governing bodies and individual clubs to try and gain some support and to try and kind of link up with them. And he's found nothing but closed doors um, because they think they, they can, they, they're they doing it all in-house. They think they're doing enough or they think they, they're pretty close to doing enough. And, um, there was another parent, I spoke to of a younger boy who was released by, by, um, Liverpool, um, who sh- she came up with a program as well that helped even help younger ages to deal with it and to, to continue their training, but also receive support from peers and from people who've been through it. And again, she's faced nothing but closed doors too. So I think, um, yeah, like I said, the game thinks it's a lot closer to cracking this problem than it is. And if, if it is going to be a crushing of dreams factory, as, uh, as David Conn put it, then um, there needs to be a lot more of a sort of safety net, a lot more robust of a safety net to catch these people who
0: are slipping through it at the moment. I think football books come out every so often, Ryan, that challenge your deeply held beliefs and preconceived notions. Um, I'm referring to Raphael Honeckstein's That's Reboot, Michael Calvin's State of Play certainly thank the dream factory by your good self is going to be one of them um when is it officially out, right? just to clarify it's out, it's out on the 5th of august so uh, just over a month from i'm recording now um but
1: it is available for pre-order in all the usual places and uh so i'm told uh, pre-orders really help with, with visibility and things so if, if if it does sound like something you're interested in listening to this um and you are thinking of checking it out please do so and, and um, any pre-orders or, or or once it's out any orders are, are, are greatly appreciated
0: yeah, I'd have to follow that up by saying it's a must read for all educators, coaches, players themselves. I certainly know I'll be rereading it now over the coming weeks. But Ryan, anyways, thank you for being so generous with your time. Um, really took a lot from this conversation. Very illuminatory. And uh, keep up the great work. Thanks, Donna, Thanks for your kind words and thanks for, for having me on. And I really enjoyed the chat.